Father in heaven, we count it so great a privilege that we could be here in the house in this evening. Lord, we, we count it a blessing that we even live in a nation where something like Good Friday is still remembered, maybe not for the reason it should be, and not celebrated or memorialized the way that it should be, Lord, but we have the opportunity as thy children here to express the true meaning that we commemorate this evening. And, and Lord, we pray that as we would look into your word, that our minds and our hearts would be reminded of the true gift that was offered on our behalf. Lord, the blessing of a relationship with thee that we can have because of the activities of this night. And so, Lord, we pray that our minds could be cleared of the distractions that would otherwise be there, that we could be focused about your word, and that we could be encouraged and rejoice of the blessing and the true privilege we have to be called thy children. Lord, be with those who can't be with us tonight. Be with those who are under the weather, those that are shut in. Minister to their needs and, and provide for them. Give them encouragement even in this night. And for it, Lord, we'll give you thanks and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I ask you to turn with me. We're going to read two, two scriptures this evening. Uh, to Matthew chapter 27. And I guess you don't have to turn there with me yet, but we will also look in Luke chapter 23, starting with Matthew 27. Good Friday services are are ones I've struggled with in the past, and I, I know a number of years ago, well, the reason I find them difficult sometimes is because I don't know how you can talk about Friday night without talking about Sunday morning, and you don't want to steal the thunder for the brothers that have to have those messages, and so I've always kind of had trouble, I've had this, this message a couple of times now, and struggled with how to delineate a, a, a message without getting into the resurrection. But a couple of weeks ago, actually it would have been a couple, it was last, last Wednesday evening, when we were talking here um, in Bible study about some of the activities of the Passion Week and specifically Good Friday, I was struck by the, the thieves on the cross. I never really gave it a whole ton of thought before. Um, two characters that we I put on you know, opposite sides of the spectrum. I've often thought of this image, and I know it's crass, but I've thought of the, the image that people have of when your conscience is talking to you, of the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder. And it was like, that's almost how it was for Jesus, right? He had this one thief that was saved, and then the other one was still evil. These two, this dichotomy of people. And then as I was studying over the last couple of weeks uh, about this, um, I was really struck by that relationship and what, what took place. And so my hope is that we can look at that just a little bit this evening and, and think of it, and there's three words that came to mind. There's a prayer, there's a transformation, and there's a promise. And those three things dovetailing into the relationship that Christ had, even with the thieves on the cross in that brief time that they spent, that they spent together. So that is too lengthy an introduction. If we could start, uh, we'll start with verse 36 of chapter 27 in Matthew. 
and it says, And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation, written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And they passed by, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that but destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. He will, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him, for he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in their teeth. We'll stop with verse 44. I never really appreciated how crass and how humiliating the scene at the cross must have been. We'll read it in Luke also. But you have this scenario where Jesus has already um, had to carry his cross. They, I mean, he had help in doing so because he wasn't able to bear it himself. But these, these condemned men were... were forced to carry their cross, to drag this giant piece of wood to Golgotha. They are nailed to the tree, and then they're heckled and harassed. Um, you know what? I, I said I was going to hold off, but I think I need to. Let's, I'm going to read some of these verses in Luke, and then we'll editorialize it a little bit again. In Luke 23 starting with verse 33, uh, 32. And there were also two others, malefactors, led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and one on the left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also, which derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And there was a superscription which was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. We'll stop at verse 38 for a second. What I wanted to get there was this whole business about not only were they yelling at him, but they've stripped them naked now, and they're parting their garments. I mean, this, if, if it doesn't get worse than just, you've been condemned, if what we know of executions in our day, as horrific as they seem, there at least appears to be some measure of, gosh, this is a hard way of saying it, decency, respect. I'm not, that's probably not the right words to use in this circumstance. But there is there is at least some appreciation of human life. And yet we have this scenario where Christ is there and a week earlier, he's being praised in the streets. He's having palm branches shaken at him, being proclaimed a savior. And now the chief priests, the rulers, the soldiers are, are, are mocking him, giving him vinegar to drink when he says that he thirsts. 
taking his clothes and, and you know, gambling upon them and, and, and splitting them up. And I don't know if you caught it, but in, in the Matthew passages, in this whole portion where it says he saved others himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of the Jews, let him come down from the cross. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now. And it says that it's all the priests and the scribes and the elders and so on. But then in verse 44, it says, The thieves also that were crucified with him cast the same in their teeth. Other translations just say it very clearly. Said the same thing. The thieves there were saying the same thing. And so I say to myself, how we know where the story is going, right? We're going to read about this man that is, is saved in his last moments. But the beginning of the night, before the dark, before the veil is rent in two, these men together, I'm going to assume that they were both saying it, because it says these, they, the thieves also, which were crucified, cast the same in his teeth. I get this impression that as the night starts, Jesus is still there in the middle of these two thieves and one bantering back to the other, wailing the same things that everybody else is saying. But something happens. We read it in Luke 23. In Luke 23, it says in verse 46, in the midst of all of this heckling, in the midst of all of this abuse, Jesus says to the people, excuse me, he doesn't say to the people, he says to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It doesn't stop the conversation. It doesn't... Um, doesn't wipe it all away. It doesn't make everybody stop their, their berating of him or, or any of that. Um, in fact, it, it continues. We, we see that they continue to, to heckle and harass him and, and, and um, abuse him. Then it says, And one of the malefactors, one of the thieves, which hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. I'm not telling you anything new. This is all passages that we've read so many times. But I never caught that before. If you're the king of the Jews, if you're who you say you are, if you're really Christ, save yourself and us. You know, you saved so many other people. I've watched you. I heard all about how that woman with the issue of blood just walked by and brushed the hem of your garment and everything was fixed. And there was, how many times did you say, son, your sins are forgiven you? And they got up and walked and ran away. This should be pretty easy, Jesus. You're up here too. I'm here Save yourself and us. If you who you say you are, save us. But something happened in this time period between being mounted to the cross, being nailed to it, and now hearing this prayer that Jesus had prayed and hearing this accusation or this, this plea that the one thief is making. The other one answering rebuked him saying, Dost thou fear God, seeing thou art on the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. 
Now we know that there was a centurion there, a soldier there later that will say, um, surely this man was the son of God. So we know that there were believers there. We know that this impression or a, a transformation was made in many hearts. But this one, this heart, the unlikeliest convert, the unlikeliest person to be saved in this moment, is a man that's standing there on the, or hanging there on the cross, listening to everything that's going on, and the words that are hung in his ears that he can't get out are, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What I don't think we often appreciate, what I don't think the world often appreciates, is when, when a plea is made like that, when someone says, oh, God, forgive me for this, and they apply this, this phrase, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Jesus wasn't saying, God, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. He wasn't asking for their sins to be overlooked. We know, and we've, we've been able to embrace faith and, and, and experience his grace. We've had his grace applied in our lives. We, we know this, but what he was saying was that I will take their sin. He was saying, Father, forgive them. I will remove their sin. They don't know what they're doing. And so that man on the cross is listening there. He, Jesus is saying, forgive them. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand this. And the people continue. And this man is transformed by that. Because as he's hanging on the cross, and everyone is railing against him and saying, railing against Christ and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Save yourself and us. Call on God. Here's your kingdom. The king of the Jews written in all these different languages so nobody could miss it. And he says... Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Just few short words. Not complicated, not a big um, spiritual or flowery religious prose that he's offering up there. He's simply claiming Christ's authority, claiming the grace that's offered and saying that... In this one phrase, he acknowledges who God is, acknowledges who Christ is, acknowledges the salvation that can be applied to him, and acknowledging that he has nothing to do with it. We have repentance, we have a desire for reconciliation, and we have surrender, all in just a few words. And Jesus' response to him is not, excuse me, well, I'll just read. Verily I say unto thee, today... Shalt thou be with me in paradise? Not someday you'll be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then we know, and we're not going to read it, we know what happens next. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And it goes dark. And he gives up the ghost. We talked about this last Wednesday evening. But the first convert under the new covenant was the thief on the cross. Maybe I'm wrong by that. Maybe there was some other miraculous way that there was somebody else that would have come to faith in those moments. But what we have recorded here is 
The first one under the new covenant. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And in the realms of religion in the world, that is the most unlikely, irresponsible, irresponsible, unresponsible, I don't know, um, unrealistic conversion that could ever happen. Because that's not how it works. There are so many other things that have to happen in order for someone to be saved. There are so many other things that have to happen in order for someone to be found righteous enough for heaven. There's so many other things that we have to do to apply to our lives, to scrub out of our lives, to correct in our lives, to make us worthy of salvation. Are there lives that we should live, that we need to live, we're called to live? Absolutely. But in this moment, we can see that with simple faith expressed in maybe ten words, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. What really convicted me about this is, I know you're not going to find this to be quite the parallel, But as I was thinking about that and struggling, honestly struggling with how do I how do I describe how do I describe the value of a thorough conversion process experience, not process. Thorough ex- conversion experience. How do I describe the value and the blessing and the preciousness of that when I see this response here? And what struck me, and I'm not going to, I promise, I wasn't wrong. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to end this by saying I was wrong in what I said, but appreciating from multiple places. What really struck me was the prodigal son and his big brother. The prodigal son, really fast, runs out, spends all of his inheritance, riotous living, ruins himself, ruins half of his family's assets, all those things. Terrible, dreadful, everything. Comes back, father has a party. And a big brother says that he was angry. was wrathful, I think is the way that it says. Because he was always there. He always did the right thing. He always was trying to contribute. He always was the one that was, was doing the right thing. And the father has to say, my son that was lost is found that was dead is alive. You are, you're with me all the time. I think the father was a lot nicer about this than he probably needed to be. But what struck me was how many, how many times in my life, and I guess I'll be more pointed than I used, how many Christians exist in this world living their lives like the big brother? Not saying that the relationship with the Lord is not there but that live our lives with an expectancy of our eternal reward rather than an appreciation for how un, unworthy we are of it. Is it in Corinthians? I, I won't look for it now. It says that Honestly, I'm, going to, I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to sing the lyrics in my head because I remember it that way. God made him who knew no sin so that we would become his righteousness. 
God made him or who had no sin so that we could become his righteousness. Sometimes I feel like we get to Friday night and we don't appreciate enough the gift that was offered on our behalf. We feel almost entitled to it. And I, I, I say that my, myself. And I think that maybe that's a product of walking, that's a product of being in the faith a while and having, and unfortunately, having a lot of this world rub off on us. Where we think when we do something a long enough time, we do something longer that we're getting better at it. You know, I stayed with you, Dad, all these years. I did all of the right things. And that knucklehead over there did all the wrong things. And in the end, it's all equal? How is it fair that in the end it's all equal? Well, you know what? Christ was hanging there for the ones that were reviling him and were stabbing at his side and were giving him vinegar just in the same way that he was for Peter and James and John and I won't list you off by name, and all of you. Before and after, he was hanging there for every single one of us. And the pain was exactly the same for one of us or for all of us. Shame on me for thinking that my contribution, that's got to be in quotes because it doesn't count, my perceived contribution to the kingdom was any more valuable than the contribution that this man made on his deathbed. What kind of a testimony did he make to everybody else that was around? The first person to acknowledge that the kingdom of God was starting right now, absent Christ saying it so many other times, was this thief saying, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. He didn't say, save me today. He knew that his sins were beyond, beyond being forgiven. He clearly in this moment didn't understand all that had to go into it. It wasn't like anybody preached some massive, powerful sermon. Jesus didn't say that much while he was standing on the, or hanging on the cross. He said a prayer, and he let everybody else condemn him and throw proverbial stones. There probably were a couple physical ones too. And what this man saw by the response of the master, what this man saw by the witness of Christ on the cross was enough for him to come to a realization and appreciation of his lost state, his need for Christ, and embrace it in that moment. And Jesus said, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. There's a lot of folks out there that would say, He could have said, We'll see. Good start. I'll let you off the cross, live it a little longer, and we'll, we'll see where you get. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Our, our redemption is nothing of our own. Nothing. We don't deserve it. But we have the privilege of living lives being the righteousness of God. His righteousness. And that's where maybe the change comes, right? The blessing of seeing this kind of a scripture, the blessing of having this story says to me that, and I think dad mentioned it, might have just mentioned it last week. The blessing of this story is for those moments when I don't know where someone's heart is. 
haven't had the blessing of being able to testify or have them testify to us of the peace that they have with the Father. And they go on to their eternal reward. And we don't know what happened when their eyes closed and their mouth was closed. We don't know. We know that. As God ministers to his children, salvation is that simple. It's that simple. Life here below is complicated sometimes, and that's why we have to be vigilant and we have to be circumspect and we have to live lives, live lives in the righteousness of God, not seeking to be worthy of it, but to be caretakers of it. So that we can live lives that are witnesses like Christ's was. I mean, can you imagine? Is that... This is graphic. Not, not graphic, but... Hang me on the cross and see if somebody's going to be saved by the witness I'm going to give. Is my interaction with my coworkers, with my friends, with my family, with my kids, is my interaction with them, is the witness of my walk... My relationship with the Lord, such that it would point that clear a reflection of the Spirit's working in my life, it would point that clear an example of the faith that we've been called to, of the obedience that we've been called to, of the gift that we've received and desire to share with the rest of the world. And like I said before, it, it often is not often. It probably near always is not. Because as I've walked too long, I've become the big brother. I am the big brother. And just by nature, I think many, many, many of us have that ingrained in us, where we think just by virtue of the miles on our shoes, by the... Just leave it at that. By the miles on our spiritual shoes that we have somehow attained the reward that we know we have. And I'm not questioning the reward. I'm not questioning the motives. I'm not questioning the, the relationship. But what I really was hoping that I could drive home for myself is my appreciation of it. My recognition of my complete lack of bringing anything to the table and seeing that that's precisely where, where we're supposed to be. That's precisely the place where our lives are supposed to be lived in the Spirit. Not that we feel, un, not that we feel perpetually unworthy, but we recognize where our worthiness comes from. I, this was months and months ago, I heard a song and um, I, I used, I think I gave credit to it. I know I gave credit to, Brian asked me about it afterwards. Um, the song starts out and references um, the disciples in the boat calling on Jesus. And then it references the woman who was caught in, uh, caught in adultery and Jesus writing in the, in the sand. And references those two people and Jesus showing compassion to them. But I didn't mention it, but the third verse, and i just read you a snippet of it, um, really, really struck me. And I I wasn't sure if this is where I was really called to go this evening until last night when I was struggling with indecision on that and this, the song popped up again. 
And the third verse says, There are three wooden crosses, two thieves and a king. But can't they see the innocence hanging here next to me? Am I too late for forgiveness? Will you remember me tonight? And with your dying breath, you welcomed me to paradise. Because you could have left me alone in my suffering, but you stayed on the cross with me. And in the chorus of that song is, uh, Hey Jesus, I really want to follow you. But really, what just blew me away by that thought was, Jesus prayed this prayer. Forgive them. They know not what they do. And in my mind, the way I remember the story was at that moment, the lights went out. But that's not what happened. Jesus forgave them. Jesus proclaimed forgiveness to all of these folks saying they don't know what they're doing. And then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Then he had this interaction with this thief on the cross. This man was saved, given assurance of his salvation. Then he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the lights went out and he gave up the ghost. Jesus could have fast forwarded this. Jesus gave up the ghost. He could have done it when the pain was at its worst. He didn't have to stay on the cross for this one more guy. But allowing that time to pass, allowing those experiences to happen over the course of, what are we talking? Minutes, hours, not days. There was salvation offered to This man. And as we look at as we look at that and we appreciate the gift that was offered there, my hope and my prayer is that perhaps more deeply, not just for Good Friday, not just for tonight or for this weekend, my mind and my heart and our minds and hearts could be shifted. And, and refocused to recognize the, the true gift that we've been offered and that we have been given. And that it's not of us. And as soon as it starts to try to become part of us, we, we take it away from him. We wouldn't, want, we wouldn't want the pardon to be, yeah, don't worry about their sins. We wouldn't want Jesus to have been saying, eh, it's not that big a deal. He hung on the cross to remove our sin debt, to remove the debt that we owed. And if I try to minimize that by maximizing or overemphasizing what we bring to the table, what I bring to the table, I make that a mockery. And it's not intentional. And I, like I said before, I think it is the product of our walk and of this world and how we have it our own way and think we can add to whatever we want and accomplish whatever we want. 
But I have to think about what a blessing that man had in those last moments. We don't know what the time was, right? We don't know what the time was from Jesus making that utterance of, today you'll be with me in paradise, to giving up the ghost. But imagine the peace that he had. Just imagine. Who was it, did they say, when Aunt Ginny passed? Do you know the blessing of the passing of a saint? The doctor commented on knowing the blessing of the passing of a saint. Well, we, some of us may have been able to see that and, and understand that blessing. Someone, the blessing to watch the homegoing of a saint, I think is the, the phrase. None of us in this room have been to that point where we thought we're going home. But we know the peace that we, we have in the Lord. And imagine if you knew that moment was coming. And I said, today's the day. And you had the assurance of Almighty God in the person of his son saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the peace that he's called us to live with and to embrace every single day. As his children, that's what I'm supposed to be living with every single day. Should I not be floating out to everywhere I go? Should my life not exemplify that peace in, in all things? Yeah, waves will come. He was still hanging on a cross. It was still painful. There were still probably tears and pain and all the sorrow that goes with that. But today, he knew where his assurance was. And because we do, I pray that we can reflect that peace to the rest of the world so that it would be that thing that would draw them to him. Not to us, but to him. May the Lord bless these few words.